It's amazing how often we find ourselves in situations where we need to know who is in charge. Just yesterday, this came up twice in the span of an hour for me. First, I was at a restaurant, and the worst thing that could happen at 8 in the morning happened. They ran out of coffee. So I had to find the person in charge so that I could very lovingly notify them that that I needed some more coffee, please. Then just a little bit later, um, I was uh, heading somewhere to do some volunteering. And as I showed up, I realized I need to find the person in charge so that I can find out what I'm supposed to do, where I'm supposed to do it, how long, and, and all of those things. And it just cracked me up because I'd been thinking about this question um, all week, who's in charge? And so even yesterday morning, then just again, in the matter of one hour, two silly little incidences that, that again remind us how often we find ourselves in that kind of a situation. Who's in charge? We need to know something. Someone should know. Someone ought to be in charge. Uh, and so um, as we come to the minor prophets this morning, and then as we get to uh, a book called Nahum, I, I joked uh, in my email that Jason mentioned too, um, anybody have devotions in Nahum recently? Um, probably most of us honestly haven't. I know I've read through or listened to Nahum in the course of my Bible reading plan, but I've never thought, you know, I'm going to slow down and just spend weeks <laughs> in this little little book. Uh, but we are going to spend the next little while today working our way through this little book. And, and in this little book, um, Pastor Mark Dever, he, he's the one, as I was studying this week, uh, he was the one that came up with essentially that question as it relates to Nahum, that that is the eternal or, or uh, central question to the book of Nahum. Who is in charge? And, and Nahum is going to answer that, in fact, for us. Um, who is in charge? Um, if you know Nahum, if maybe you you know, read it or, or looked through it before today, um, the, the truth is um, uh, it's kind of a discouraging little book, okay? And, and again, we need to kind of set it in the context here for a minute of uh, what's going on. So minor prophets, they're minor because they're small-ish, and Nahum is one of those small ones. It's only three chapters compared to the major prophets, the big ones, like Isaiah, for example. Uh, they're not minor because they're unimportant, They're minor simply because they're small. And so we have 12 of them, uh, and that's what we call them in our Bible, the minor prophets, uh, the the people of God, the Jewish people from the Old Testament time. uh, They refer to it even still, actually, in their Hebrew scriptures as the book of the 12. So these are 12 little books that comprise one book of the 12. And again, they don't come at the very end of our Old Testament. We tend to think, you know, if you start in Genesis and that's the beginning and then move chronologically, you eventually get to the New Testament and the Gospels. So these books right there before Jesus must be happening right there before Jesus. But remember, we, we've talked about they, they come in the history of, of the people of, of Israel and Judah. And so this stuff is all going on uh, during the time of uh, the, the kingdom being divided between north and south, sometimes before God's people were taken into exile. Sometimes these prophets are writing during exile. Sometimes they're being uh, written when, when they've returned from exile. So it's all happening in, in the history of God's people. And as prophets, they were speaking a word from God to the people. Um, and in most cases, 
It was some form of judgment. And we'll see that this book is that, in fact, today. And so it isn't one of those books that we often turn to. Um, I had a brief conversation uh, just this morning. Um, Someone reminded me that years ago, a former pastor of hers um, loved Nahum 1.7. And it was, in fact, that verse that I had sent out in the email. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And of course, that was uh, the one song that we did uh, is, is from that. So that is a good verse. Uh, there are a couple of good verses, like as in good and worth memorizing, and, and Nahum 1.7 would be one of those. But Nahum, as we'll see this morning, um, even though it's a book of judgment, here's what's, what's in, what we need to know. It's in, in, intended to be in a book of encouragement to God's people. Um, It's in fact, again, answering that God is the one in charge. And I'll flesh that out in a moment. God's people, including us today, all these years later, we can be encouraged because God is the one in charge. Sometimes we use that word sovereignty. He is sovereign and it's his sovereignty that makes him in charge. So uh, if you haven't already, please open to Nahum. Chapter 1, verse 1, it comes after Micah, before Habakkuk, which is where we'll be next, uh, in two weeks, Lord willing. Uh, Next week, uh, we will take a break from the Minor Prophets to consider the Reformation for Reformation Sunday, of course. Um, And so, and this is also number 7 out of the 12. So we are are now over the hump, we are into the home stretch of the 12. And just if you're curious, we're going to finish up the Minor Prophets right into December, and then spend a few weeks uh, celebrating uh, Advent and Christmas time before uh, 2023. So that's a little bit of where we're going. So Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. And I've put this verse on the screen. You can look at it in your Bible or up on the screen. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. So let's talk for a minute about Nineveh and Nahum. Uh, Nineveh shouldn't be that unfamiliar to most of you. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, we were in the minor prophet of Jonah, two, two minor prophets back. I was thinking, was that last week? No, I, that was Micah last week, but I wasn't here for it. But the last message I did was two weeks ago, and it was none other than Jonah. And God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Remember, to preach this message of repentance. And uh, Jonah, being a good, obedient person, said, no, thank you, God, right? And he tries to go the other direction. And um, God can't be, uh, can't hide from God. You can't outrun God. And, and Jonah's just an amazing story uh, of, of God pursuing the Ninevites so that they would repent, but, but pursuing Jonah and, and doing what is necessary uh, to get Jonah there. And, and so you'll just recall, um, Jonah goes reluctantly. He, he does finally go, and he's obedient, but he doesn't want to go. He, he can't stand the Ninevites, and we'll talk about that more in, in just a moment. But he goes, and people repent and, and turn from their evil. And, and so God holds off uh, his judgment against them, okay? So what's interesting, what we're going to see here in, in Nahum this morning is that uh, Nahum is a book of judgment against Nineveh. So, so like, keep that in, in tension with Jonah. Jonah 
is a book of God wanting the Ninevites, and by the way, that's the capital of Assyria, this empire, to repent. And then two books later, now it's time for them to be judged for their wickedness and sin. And so there's this interesting juxtaposition. Um, we need to remember Nahum when we, when we have Jonah in mind. Um, so Nineveh, let's, let's just get some historical context. This city, as I said, was the capital of Assyria. Um, it was located on the bank of the Tigris River in northern Mesopotamia. Of course, like that's a long time ago. Um, it would be in modern uh, Iraq and most probably in modern Mosul, that, that city that some of you would be familiar with. Um, not too many years ago, the city of Mosul was in fact the city that ISIS or uh, the Islamic State um, had occupied as they had mounted up as, as this new threat, uh, so to speak. Um, raise your hand if you remember like that stuff. Like it's not too far away, that, that history. So as you think Nineveh, no, that city isn't there anymore, but, but Mosul definitely is. Within Iraq, that's all definitely a place uh, where even today you have all this political and global stuff taking place. Well, at the time, Nineveh, it was one of the grandest and most powerful cities on earth, uh, again, as the capital of, of Assyria. Um, in fact, scholars tell us that it had walls um, that were so magnificent, and, th- and they had two series of walls surrounding the whole city that would run on for miles and miles, and the inner wall, um, again, it's kind of a double wall deal, the inner wall of the two went up about 100 feet high. And, and then surrounded this city. Um, outside of it, the, there was a moat that was 100 feet wide, 60 feet deep. Um, the Tigris and other smaller rivers that surrounded Nineveh, and then you had this. Um, it made this city look like it just could not be conquered. It was gigantic. And so as I've noted, noted already, that's where God sent Jonah to go. And again, this was to uh, God's people's enemies, um, the Assyrians, um, they, they were known for their brutality, um, not just to the nations of Judah and Israel, but to all surrounding uh, countries as well. Um, so Israel, the northern ten tribes, they had been taken captive um, in 722, okay, um, probably just a few decades after Jonah's time, okay, and then it's about 100 years later, so Jonah's in the 700s BC, and it's about 100 years later in the 600s that now Nahum is supposed to preach. So Jonah preached, they repented, but then they also then went back to their war ways and, and took Israel captive. And meanwhile, Judah, the southern kingdom, is watching all this happen, watching the northern tribes be taken away, watching Assyria uh, defeat all these other countries in it as well. And it isn't just that Judah watched. In fact, 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 32, and even in Isaiah 36, all speak of um, a city, particularly the city of Lachish, um, that, is, um, that falls to Assyria uh, and, and is destroyed by Assyria. Um, even still today, again, I was talking with my mother-in-law a couple weeks ago. You can go in, into Washington, D.C., Jan, what's the name again of the British Museum? Yeah, the British Museum. And, and they have like 
artifacts that show all of this stuff. And you can, you can see visually uh, what the historians uh, record for us. So just for some perspective, um, just, to, just to, to grasp how powerful and cruel uh, the Assyrians were. Um, from extra biblical sources, we, we learn that um, one of their kings in particular, Ashurbanipal, if that's how you say it, he wanted there to be no question left about um, whether he was in charge, right? He, he, we're talking today and answering who's in charge. Well, he definitely thought he was. And on one occasion, he boastfully wrote down or had someone else write the following. As for those common men who have spoken derogatory things against my God, Asher, and had plotted against me, the prince who reveres him, I tore out their tongues and abased them. As a posthumous offering, I smashed the rest of the people alive by the very figures of protective deities between which they had smashed Sennacherib, my grandfather. Their cut-up flesh I fed to the dogs, swine, jackals, birds, vultures, to the birds of the sky, and to the fishes of the deep pools. So this is one king's own account of what he was doing and what he did to his enemies. That's what they were famous for. That's what Assyria was famous for. What Nineveh was famous for. But who's in charge? Are the Assyrians really in charge? Uh, It sure seemed like it in those days. And so Judah, having watched the northern tribes be taken away, Judah having seen some of their own cities and surrounding cities destroyed, they're wondering, you know, they must be in charge. Now, what's interesting, in, in 7, uh, um, 612, 612 it is when it is, um, that's, in fact, when Babylon would conquer Assyria. So Assyria is not going to be in charge very much longer. The next major kingdom is going to be the Babylonian kingdom, uh, in fact. And so this book is a word against Nineveh, against Assyria, that is prophetic because, again, once... A few decades later, after Nahum gives this word, Babylon will, in fact, come in and destroy them. Now, back to verse 1. It says, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum. We don't know much about Nahum, really, other than what we have here. But the word Nahum, his name, it means comfort or consolation. So just, just... Let that soak in a minute. God has an oracle in this vision that's to be written down in a book, and it's for God's people who are scared of Assyria. It's a word of judgment against Assyria, but it it comes by one whose name means comfort. And it would have brought comfort to God's people to know that they're not really in charge. There's one who's greater who's in charge, and he's going to deal with them. You're afraid of them. You've had to suffer under him. The northern tribes have had to suffer, but there's still one who's even more in charge. And so Nahum, by his name, would have brought comfort and consolation. What's even more interesting, uh, words, of course, uh, have, have, you know, their their name, their, their meanings and context and whatnot, but, right, there's also roots of words and so forth. Well, the root of, of Nahum, it means to be relieved by taking vengeance. So at the root of the word Nahum is this idea of being relieved by the taking of vengeance. 
and that would be especially fitting for Nahum. The comfort and consolation that would come as he's this prophet, as he tells God's people what God's going to do to Assyria, it would be because God, who alone can take vengeance, will in fact take vengeance on Assyria for what they have done. And isn't that just a weird thing for us to think about? It should be weird. And I just want to pause before we get into Nahum chapter one a minute. We live, right, this many years past this time. God's people now are not any one nation or country. God help us if we ever think we, the people of the United States of America, are God's people. Now, post the cross, post the life of Jesus, the church is made up of people from every nation and tribe and tongue. So there is no one country that is God's people. Now God's people are made up of Jew and Gentile and everyone. And so we need to guard against thinking that, you know, God has something special for the United States or for what other, other country and things like that. Um, God's people from every tribe and nation are God's people. His covenant is not with one ethnic group any longer, but with people from every tribe. And yet, we live in a country, and we sit even today on this side of the world, and we listen and read as things are happening in Russia and Ukraine, and on it goes. And um, boy, it was, it's hard, honestly, as I read to you a moment ago, and as I was reading all week about these Assyrian kings, you know, it's hard not to think, boy, whether it's, whether it's, you know, Putin nowadays thinking he's in charge or whether it was Hitler thinking he was in charge or Stalin or Mao Zedong or any of these rulers throughout history that have risen up. Uh, leaders do and people rise up thinking that they are in charge. But we, we will see again today that God's people, and it's not about a country but about people from every country can be encouraged because God is ultimately the one in charge. And yes, we as Americans might face things. Um, we, we are still a young experiment as a country compared to some of these empires and countries and, and nations from antiquity. Um, but, but God's covenant is now with, again, those who are in Christ from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And we'll, we'll see a connection to that here in, in a moment. We, too, can be encouraged because God is in charge. So let's get back to Nahum. And, and I want us to spend just time this morning in uh, chapter 1 of, of Nahum. Um, again, uh, just a brief outline. You can see it on the screen. There's several different ways to outline um, any book of the Bible, honestly. And, and so this writer um, comes up with this broad swash outline. Chapter one is generally about Nineveh's destruction being uh, it declared that it's going to happen. Chapter two gets into uh, the destruction of Nineveh described. And then chapter three uh, is about the destruction of Nineveh being deserved. Okay. And so that's one way to sort of break down Nahum. Um, it's actually an interesting oracle or vision that God gave to Nahum. It's very poetic. Uh, there's all sorts of uh, poetry happening, and even in chapter one, where we're going to read and comment, um, he moves between pre- preaching, prophesying against Nineveh, but then speaking to Judah, and, and, and it's hard sometimes to determine who who is he talking to and about. 
uh, here in, in this. But let's, let's see some things. And again, I want to keep reminding us that this is about God's people and be encouraged because God is in charge. So Nahum chapter one, beginning now at verse two. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. How many times do you see the word vengeance there? That's not rhetorical. Three, that's what I count to. Yeah, and wrath comes up a couple of times. Um, God is going to show Nineveh that they are not in charge, but he is in fact in charge. And he said, anyone that takes their place against me and my people, I will deal with them. And so he is jealous, he is avenging, he's wrathful. Um, And so uh, let's talk about God being jealous for a minute. Um, If you're a parent in the room, um, this is always one of those weird statements because we, we, we try to teach our kids, most of us were taught that jealousy is a bad thing. And, and so then you come to passages in the scripture, and this isn't the only one. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24, Deuteronomy 5, 9. All these, in those verses, God is saying, I am a jealous God. And it's always a little bit of a head scratcher. Um, the problem is because we, we confuse jealousy a bit. Um, one writer puts it like this. To be clear, God is not jealous of his people, but he is jealous for his people. So most of the time when we are jealous, it's because really we're, we're, we're coveting. In fact, catechism next week as we get to the 10th uh, commandment it deals with coveting and not wanting what other people have. Most of our jealousy that is sinful is jealousy because we want what someone else has. So it's, it, it's jealousy, yes, of someone, but, it's, but it tends to look more covetous. Well, God is not like that. But no, God is jealous for his people. Uh, the, the best analogy or, or illustration, I think, is for, I'll just use it, I've used it before. I, I'm jealous for my wife. Um, I ought to be. She's my wife. She's no one else's wife. And so I'm gonna be jealous for her and, and for our relationship. I'm jealous for my kids. They're my kids. Um, and, and so I'm, I'm jealous for my family. And God, he's jealous for his people, especially his sons and daughters, those whom he's saved. I mean, and so I'm moving now out of Old Testament, Old Covenant into New Covenant for a minute. God still is a jealous God for you. This is why, like the prophet Hosea, who we looked at now uh, over a month ago, right, as they served other gods as they left worshiping Yahweh. God spoke of it in such intense terms. It was as if they were committing adultery or, right, the ESV's term, whoredom, right? Because God is jealous for those that he's in a covenant relationship with. He gave his life for his people. And so when we pursue other gods and put other things in front of him and and have other gods, he's jealous for us. And so God says here, He's jealous. So Assyria, Nineveh, 
You, you have done harm and harm and harm to, to my people. The Lord is jealous and he is a God who avenges. He's, he's wrathful, it says. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. You think you're in charge, kings of Assyria? No, you just watch the Lord. He is an avenging God. Again, this idea that, that this vengeance affirms, again, who God is, and he's a God of justice. He, he will deal with wrongdoing, and it won't go unpunished forever. There might be a season, it might be a time, but he will. And that's what happened to the Assyrians. Jonah came 100 years before, preached God's jealous, God's vengeful, but he wants you to repent, and they did. And so there was 100 years of, until God says, okay, but I'm still a God of justice and I'm going to deal with you. And, and, and then, as I said, in, in 612 BC, Babylon would come and no more Assyrian dynasty. Verse three continues. The Lord is slow to anger. Isn't that weird? <laughs> he's wrathful and avenging, but he's slow to anger. And again, he had been, he had been patient with Assyria and with Nineveh. By the way, Nahum here is quoting Exodus 34, 6, this great statement where God describes who he is. This is important for God's people. It should be important for us too. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet, possibly there uh, an allusion to what the Assyrians in their worship of their deities thought of the way the deities traveled in the winds and whatnot. Um, God is slow to anger. He, he warns people, but, but he is great in power. Psalm 89 verse 11 says, the heavens are yours. The earth also is yours the world, and all that is in it, you have founded them. Who's in charge? Is it Assyria? It is the Lord. It is God. Let me keep reading. Verse four. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, possibly they're an allusion to the exodus. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces I am. Syria, you are not in charge, Nahum is saying. God is. And when God is ready, he will deal with you. But he's slow. There's time. Repent. I remember vividly, 19 or so years ago, uh, moving up here from Southern California and seeing this bumper sticker. I never saw it in Ventura County, but I saw it up here all the time in 2003. 
who would Jesus bomb? Anybody remember seeing that bumper sticker? Please don't raise your hand if you had one. I did some research this week on, on this, um, and you know, I learned a lot from Wikipedia. True or not, I don't know. Uh, but according to a few articles that, that I read, um, around that time, 2002, 2003, uh, of course, the United States, so bear with me here, I don't want to offend, just bear with this little anecdotal story about the bumper sticker. Around that time, of course, this is post 9-11, 2000. And one, and uh, so the United States is looking for weapons of mass destruction. The United States is looking for who was responsible for 9-11. The United States is looking for anyone who might be harboring those fugitives. And we were at war around the world. And um, apparently, I don't even, I didn't write down this guy's name, but but some person um, had a, a T-shirt that he wore with, uh, Bush number two's face uh, on his shirt, President Bush two, um, and then it captions something like "World Terrorist." Okay, so clearly this person wasn't too excited about what the United States was doing around the world, and um, wanted to make a point politically. And so, in a in a grocery store, um, um, as he's wearing the shirt, um, someone comes up to him, just visibly upset by this T-shirt, and and says to him. He is a godly man, to which this guy responded, and they get into this little sparring political comment, who would Jesus bomb? And, and then he, if it's the same guy, took that phrase and, and wrote a, store, a song. And so there's some song, I don't know if it's called that, or, but it has that refrain in it. And so then a lot of people that felt the same as this young man politically um, latched on to that phrase, and so bumper stickers were, were made. Uh, and so that's a little bit of the, the context. So backing up 19 years ago, I had no clue about any of that. I just remember seeing it, and here was my thought. Whoever's put that bumper sticker on the car hasn't read their whole Bible. Now, it's not that Jesus is, you know, sitting somewhere with, um, you know, nuclear briefcase kind of a thing, but um, the whole idea at one level is to try to paint a picture of, right, the God of the Old Testament who's vengeful and wrathful against Jesus, meek and mild and kind and loving. And, and so, right, who would Jesus bomb, right? If we love Jesus and we follow Jesus, well, you know, we, we shouldn't be, right? And it kind of does this kind of dichotomy but as we're going to see in a minute, um, Jesus is coming back. Yes, the Jesus who said to everyone while he lived, come to me and I'll give you rest. Um, take my burden, my yoke. It's easy compared to the religious people of your day. Come to me. Um, yes, he's the forgiving one. Yes, he's the one um, who was kind, who said we should turn the other cheek. Yes, yes, and yes to all of that. Um, but God is the same God. The same God who here um, is slow to anger, he's still slow to anger. He's still great in power. And he still um, deals with the guilty. The good news is he did it 2,000 years ago on the cross. And if we have responded to that, if God has saved us by the work of his son, then the wrath that was poured out on him, it won't come to us. 
But we're going to read in a minute in, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible that speaks of the end to come, that second coming. He's coming to deal with his enemies. And we, we can forget that. We love the gospel, the cross, and we're saved by grace through faith. Amen and amen. But those who aren't saved by grace through faith, they have wrath to face. God is the same God still today. But so even in Nahum, notice in verse 7, the gospel shows up. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Apply that, Christian, through what Christ has done. Right? The Apostle Paul says that in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So for us that are in Christ, we, we definitely should know and believe that the Lord is good and he is our stronghold in our day of trouble, be it our day of trouble because of our sin, be it our day of trouble because of the struggles around us, our suffering, our illness. I mean, you name it, he is our stronghold. He knows us through Christ. And those of us that know him because of Christ, we have the ultimate refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Again, in context of Nahum, that's Assyria and Nineveh. And will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, now again, speaking sort of to Judah in the midst of speaking to Assyria, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. This again is to Assyria. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Now listen to this next verse. You probably have heard this somewhere else. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Those words were also spoken by Isaiah and the Apostle Paul picks up those words in Romans chapter 10 to speak of us as we go out and talk about what God has done in Christ. And if we share that news, that good news about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, who God is, how he's forgiving and kind and gracious, if you turn to him, then we have lovely feet. And that's a good thing because I have ugly feet, uh, humanly speaking, but I want those kind of lovely feet. And even in Nahum's day, whoever was bringing this, which in this context was Nahum, on the mountains, this word was good news. And those feet that were bringing good news, they, they were lovely and good feet. This, this news that was announcing peace. And then this promise to Judah, 
Judah, keep your feasts, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That good news spoken to Judah would would again point forward to the news that, that we have, prefiguring the fact that we too, no matter what we're going through, we can keep worshiping because the good news that we speak of as Christians has happened and he's coming again and that's going to be a good thing. So jump forward if you are willing to the last book of the Bible, Revelation, just for a moment. The same God who at the time of Nahum said he would deal with the enemies of Judah says now that he'll deal with his people's enemies now. And again, just so it's clear, um, his people aren't any one particular country, but people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And so in Revelation 19, I'll start reading at verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were flowing, following him, excuse me, on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's the same God. And he's still slow to anger and he's delaying his return. So we that know him rejoice and say, thank you for being my shelter, my stronghold because of Christ, the one that I'm delivered in and from your wrath, God. But we need to be people of good news, church, that, that tell others that, God's in charge, and that's encouraging, but you gotta respond to it. You gotta believe it. This would continue on in Revelation 20, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave that. You can read more. But let me just end with a few passages that, that speak, again, just of that overriding idea that God is in charge, therefore be encouraged. Because the truth is, we don't know when he's coming. Uh, Judah didn't quite know when God was going to send the Babylonians in to wipe out Assyria, but it it came. And we don't know when God will return and and deal with sin. And, you know, this is one of those things, like on the one hand, like again, we rejoice in the gospel because it saved us. But but we ought to mourn for those that we love that don't believe it, that don't know it. On the other hand, that sits inside of us, but then there's also the side of us that says, come God, because our world is whack, right? There's just evil and people call things that are evil good and people call things that are good evil and it's just all upside down. There's pain and hurt and there's war like what's happening across the world and 
And of course, there's things at home too, injustices and, and, and the like. And God, would you come and deal with it? And he will, but we don't know when. So we need to be people that trust in this good God who is in charge. And that needs to encourage us. And that's, that's the message we get from Nahum. So to say God is sovereign is to say that God is God. And so 1 Timothy 6, 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. To call God sovereign is to call God God. That's who he is. Psalm 115, verse 3, reminds us that he is able to do whatever he pleases. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Our God is sovereign over nature, his ability to feed the animal kingdom, to control the weather. We see that in Job 37 and Psalm 104. Earthly rulers are like water in God's hand that he effortlessly redirects. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will any of the world rulers we hear about and read about, they're in God's control. We may wonder why God is letting them do what they do, but but they're in God's hand. He's in charge. And powerful nations, whether it was Assyria, Babylonians, of course, eventually the Greeks, the Romans, any world power in our day, Isaiah 40, verse 15 says, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. To God, the nations are nothing. When he's ready, they're done. Their their time is over, just like with the Assyrians. And finally, church, from the story of Joseph in Genesis 50, recount that briefly. Joseph's brothers intended to kill at worst, at best, like, abandoned their brother, right? And you know the, the story. God's hand was on Joseph and protects him, preserves him. And, and so Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, all these years later, when Joseph is number two in charge in Egypt and there's a famine and, and God's people come, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to get supplies and they realize finally, this is our brother. These words from Joseph. As for you, you meant evil against me. And they did. But God is in charge. The brothers weren't in charge. God meant it for good. To bring about, bring it about that many people would be kept alive as they are today. And, and talk about a verse that points to the gospel. When Jesus was hung on a cross, the Romans and the Jewish leadership, they meant it for evil. They wanted to be done with this rabbi, but God was in charge and he meant it for good so that we all might be saved. Soma, be encouraged. No matter what you're going through, no matter what we hear in the news and around the world, God is in charge. God is in charge. He is sovereign. Be encouraged. He's coming back. He is both the lion and the lamb. He's the lamb who takes away the sins of the world, but he's still a lion who will come and roar and deal with his enemies. So would you stand and let me pray and then we will sing of 
Jesus as our lion and lamb who's returning one day. So Father in heaven, would you encourage us this morning? God, even through Nahum, God, a book that most of us have not spent much time in, and it's one of those books that specifically, God, was written for the people of Judah regarding Nineveh and the Assyrians. And so we recognize that, God, it had an immediate reception, but God, within it, we we hear and see and are reminded of these big truths that you are still in charge, you are still sovereign. We can be encouraged that just as you dealt with Judah's enemies all those years ago, you will one day deal with the ultimate enemy of sin and Satan. And you've already done it on the cross and we rejoice, those of us that know you, for being freed from sin and from Satan's controls. Thank you for that good news that we've responded to. May we go forth and be people of good news as well. Encourage us in Jesus' name.